0: Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi everybody, I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now listen, I wanna encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. All right, everybody. Well, here it is. Here's our three gentlemen. That we're gonna be looking at over the course of the next few um uh weeks. Tonight we're gonna to look at Theodore Herzl, he's there on the left, and I patterned my beard after Theodore Herzl. I don't know if you see some similarities there, okay. Um, he just has more hair on his head than me. Uh then the next next week we're gonna look at David Ben Gurion, who was Israel's first prime minister. But he didn't just appear out of nowhere as prime minister. He is a very influential politician and leader in Israel's history, even prior to the state of Israel. And he was going to be working off of what um, what Theodore Herzl had done. So by learning from what we're going to learn about Theodore Herzl tonight is what David Ben-Gurion is going to be standing on as he declares Israel's independence. And then finally, we're actually going to go back in time. Uh, With Eliezer Ben Yehuda, Uh, that individual that you see right there with those awesome glasses, and he is looking as dapper as can be, um, has such a fascinating story about the rebirth, not only of a nation, Theodore Herzl and David Ben-Gurion helped to establish the political nature of the state of Israel, but Eliezer Ben Yehuda brought in a component that linked and, and bound all the Jewish people together with a language, He resurrected the Hebrew language so that uh, um, the Jewish people coming in from Eastern Europe and Europe and areas of Russia and even areas of the Middle East uh, will all be bound together by a language, the Hebrew language. And his story is such a fascinating story. So I'm excited to tell you about Eliezer Ben Yehuda. So you'll want to stick around and come back in a couple of weeks for that one. So let's talk about Theodore Herzl, everybody. He's a hero of mine, actually. Oh, let me get my thing going here. He's a hero of mine. Uh, I've come to admire Theodore Herzl more and more and more because I actually don't think Theodore Herzl ever expected in his life to do what he did uh, in helping to reestablish the Jewish state. I, I mean, I honestly, most of his life was not dedicated to the establishment of the state of Israel or a Jewish state. Uh, and I'll show you in a moment, but it's a very it's a, it's a very humbling story and people believed in him. He was a charismatic individual who could lead people with a vision. And I have to say this too because it's important to understand that Theodore Herzl is called the father of modern Zionism. Zionism is a term that I'm sure if you're on this in this class right now, you're a Zionist. That means you believe Israel has a right to, the Jewish people have a right to exist in their ancient homeland. If you're a Zionist, if you believe Israel, the Jewish people have a right to exist in their ancient homeland, raise your hand if you believe that. If you believe that, then that means you're a Zionist. And if you're a Christian, then that means you're a Christian Zionist. That means you believe that the Jewish people have a right to exist in their ancient homeland. And you know what? You can be a Zionist and believe Jewish people. Uh, shouldn't live in Jerusalem. Where you can be, uh, believe it or not. Uh, you, you know, there there are Jewish people that believe that Jewish people have a right to exist in their ancient homeland, but not in certain areas of the homeland. You know, they can divide up the land and you know what? Still be considered a Zionist. I don't believe that, of course, but I'm just trying to say there is uh, you, you can argue with people about what land belongs to who about the West Bank or or about uh, areas of of the Gaza Strip. Uh, I have my opinions, but there are other people that have different opinions. And you know what? They still would consider themselves Zionists because they believe that they, Jewish people, have a right to exist in their ancient homeland. Um, And so uh, Theodore Herzl isn't the inventor of Zionism. They call him the father of modern Zionism, but he isn't the inventor of it. Actually, it's interesting because Jewish people have been praying for the return of their people to Israel for thousands of years. They have been Zionists because the Bible is Zionist. The Bible talks about over and over and over again that the Jewish people will return. Read Ezekiel chapter 36. Read Ezekiel chapter 37. These prophetic passages of Israel's return to their to, to, to the land that God had promised them, and and these in Jewish individuals for thousands of years have been praying for God to restore them to their ancient homeland. What Theodore Herzl is going to do? Even I was reading about this. Theodore Herzl's grandfather was actually a pretty religious um, uh, Jewish individual who wrote books about Jewish people returning to the uh, to to um, to their uh, ancient homeland, and so. You know, it, it goes back. It's it's a part of the DNA. It's a part of the structure of who the Jewish people are. They they cry out at the end of Passover and Yom Kippur next year in Jerusalem because it's a part of who they are. Jerusalem, the land, all of it, it's bound in their DNA. But what Theodore Herzl is going to do, as we see later on, is he's going to take all the prayers of the Jewish people over the thousands of years That they've been in exile, and he is going to take those prayers and put them to political action. That's what he's gonna do. He was born on May 2nd, 1860, in Budapest, Hungary. And he was educated a certain way that's gonna play a major part in who he is as an individual. He was educated in the spirit of the German Jewish Enlightenment. We'll talk about that in a moment. He moved with his family from Hungary to Vienna. Austria after the death of his sister in 1878. He received a doctorate of law in 1884 and he worked in Vienna and Salzburg courts for one year and then he goes, this isn't me. Okay, so the guy's a lawyer, but he goes, this isn't what I feel called to. He loved writing and so he became a a journalist. Uh, Journalism was his passion. He became the Paris correspondent uh, for the new free press in Vienna. So he Moves to Paris and he becomes the correspondent talking about the things that are going on in Paris. I'll share with you some pictures that I have of him growing up. That's his father Jacob, uh, his sister Pauline, who dies in 1878. Uh uh, there he is, Theodore in the in the middle there with his hand on his on his cheek, and then his mother uh Jeanette. What's interesting is that. Theodore Herzl and his family were not religious at all. He grew up right next to an incredibly significant synagogue in Eastern Europe called the, Dog, uh, the Dongi uh, uh, Street Synagogue, uh, uh, and it, he grew up right next door to it. It becomes a part of his of his childhood. But they were not religious individuals, even though he grew up right next to this very influential synagogue in uh, in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, and so remember, bear that in mind as we continue our conversation in our in our on our um, little history lesson here of uh, of um, of Theodore Herzl that he was not a religious individual. You'll notice in the pictures he's never wearing a keepa. Um, he's got a nice looking beard, but I don't think that was a beard because he was a religious individual. That was just a beard from the time uh, the time period. And so just he tried to blend in as much as possible. He ends up marrying a woman named Julie Nascor, and they have three children: Paulina, Hans, and Margarita. Um, and the children, you know, they, it's an interesting relationship that Theodore Herzl will have with his children over time. It's it's quite depressing uh, some of the things that happened to his children, um, but we'll save that for another class. Uh, Theodore Herzl loved his mother. As we're approaching Mother's Day, he loved his mother a lot. Uh, he valued her opinion. They were good friends. Uh, Julie and his mother didn't get along so well, okay? And so uh, they there was always a little tension in the marriage. Um, but that's Theodor Herzl right there that you can see with his children. Herzl was an ardent Germanophile, a germophile. He he saw the Germans as the best. There's a Yiddish word, oh, not Yiddish, a German word, uh, culturevolk, cultured people. Germans were to be uh, emulated in Europe. Uh, He thought that they were very, very cultured people of Central Europe and embraced the German ideal of this word called Bildung, where, uh, where people read great works of literature by goth and Shakespeare and could allow one to appreciate beautiful things in life and thus become morally better people. The Bildung theory did, uh, tended to equate beauty with goodness. Here's where I would say a- a how you might fit Theodore Herzl into today's culture. He's an elitist. That's what he is. Uh, elitist people today think the exact same way. Elitists think nice things. Um, uh, equate to some moral goodness in some way. He really believed that good literature, uh, uh, um, all the cream that rises to the top, these things at the top, uh, these beautiful things uh, that you read and you watch and you engage with in culture will make you a morally better individual. And Germany was just the outlet for all of this uh uh, amazing literature and all of this amazing teaching that would make mankind better um Herzl believed that through building Hungarian Jews such as himself because remember he's Hungarian he's not German but that if if Hungarian Jews adopted this German way of thinking this building way of thinking such as himself they could shake off look what it says here their shameful jewish characteristics caused by long centuries of uh, uh, impoverishment and oppression and become civilized central europeans a true culture volk along with the german lines he loved german life he loved german culture and do you hear what he's what it's saying there is that theodor herzl is going to frame the way he understands how the world looks at Jewish people through this. Jewish people have been persecuted, everybody, for thousands of years. Uh, In fact, during this time, the Russian pogroms are going on. That's the story of Fiddler on the Roof, if you've ever watched Fiddler on the Roof. And so, as the Russian pogroms are happening and the Russians are persecuting the Jewish people, it's called anti Semitism. And there's anti Semitism happening in other places as well. Theodore Herzl believes here's the problem. Here's why there's anti Semitism it's because all you Jewish people who live in a, and, uh, 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 are impoverished and you're not educated, you're oppressed because of a certain reason. You're not enlightened. And if you become like the country that you are living in, and you stop being Jewish, and you embrace and live as a Jewish uh, as a as a German would live. This high elitist standard. Then guess what? There will be no more anti-Semitism. There will be no more persecution whatsoever. And he really, really, really believed that. And so bear that in mind as we continue our conversation, because we run into this issue. Remember that uh, Theodore Herzl. He's just a journalist. He's a nobody at this point. Nobody knows Theodore Herzl. Okay. Just like you don't know about the editorial writer for your local newspaper. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But not many people know the local journalists for your local newspaper. Okay. People didn't know Theodore Herzl. He didn't have a big name at all. (laughs) And so he's in Paris, and this event happens in 1894. So we're fast forwarding a few years. And there's this individual named Captain Alfred Dreyfus, he's Jewish, he's 35 years old. And he was arrested in December of 1894 for treason by the French. He was baselessly convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for sharing French military secrets to the German embassy in Paris. And he was sent to Devil's Island uh, and, uh, and, and, and pushed out there. Uh, to be to, to just be away from uh, from the French people. In 1896, though two years later, evidence appeared identifying who the true criminal was. Uh, Dreyfus was completely innocent. Uh, Major Ferdinand Esterhazy is the one that evidence shows is the one who actually committed treason. But high-ranking officials acquitted Esterhazy after a two-day trial, and they proceeded to lay additional charges on Dreyfus, okay? So Dreyfus is being, he's an innocent man, and this actually begins to create tension. There's Dreyfus actually on the island, on Devil's Island, um, and journalists like Herzl continued to press for answers stoking a growing movement of political support for Dreyfus, France started to split in half over this Dreyfus issue. And so they called Dreyfus back in 1899 and Dreyfus was returned to France for another trial. France was divided between those who supported Dreyfus and those who didn't. And Dreyfus was actually convicted again. He was sentenced to another 10 years on top of life. But later, he was pardoned and released and eventually exonerated by 1906. And think about this. After after you were convicted innocently and sent to jail, Dreyfus goes back to the French Army and serves in World War War I. Think about that. He actually goes back and serves in the Army, and he uh, ends his career as a lieutenant colonel. But I want you to know something. This created something that really struck at the core of, of uh, Theodore Herzl. It's called the Dreyfus Affair. And you know what it did for Theodore Herzl? It uncovered the anti-Semitism that was brewing in all facets of France. The military, the press, the politicians, even the common people. Were, were, were convicting. They were trying to get Dreyfus, blame Dreyfus, even though they had evidence that he was innocent. They would post anti-Semitic uh, um, uh, cartoons like this one. Nearly 69 riots or disturbances broke out throughout France. They were, stowing, uh, they were stone throwing. They were chanting anti-Semitic slogans. Um, They attacked Jewish property and Jewish people, and police even resisted helping the Jewish people in France during this time of the Dreyfus trial. All the while, there is Theodore Herzl watching what's going on in France, and he goes, this isn't what I believed in. I I thought if we assimilated into our culture, (laughs) if we assimilated into our world, if we assimilated into this, the country that we live in, then the people would accept us if we rise to the top, if we embrace the culture, the high culture of our societies that we live in. And you know what? Here he is staring at this individual right here, Alfred Dreyfus, who who as a Jewish man embraced the French way of life so much that he fought for the French way of life. He joined the military. He defended the French way of life, and yet even in the middle of embracing the culture and being someone of stature in the French society, yet somehow anti-Semitism, the hatred of the Jewish people, was the thing that still ended up uh, uh, plaguing Dreyfus, and it confused uh, uh, Herzl. It confused him so much that he had to change his mind about everything that he believed, They were even chanting death to the Jews uh, during this time. And how could this be in France? How could this happen? You know, even before the Holocaust, I want you to know this, even before the Holocaust, we're talking the Holocaust starts to ramp up in the 1930s. This is the late 1800s. Theodore Herzl is telling the Jewish people, we've got to get out of here. Think about that. We've got to get out of Europe. And so he begins to make certain movements. But listen to this. The Dreyfus Affair engendered numerous anti-Semitic demonstrations, which in turn affected sentiment within the Jewish communities of Central and Western Europe. At the same time, Jews in Rush, of the Russian Empire were under pressure of the pogroms in response to political instability within the pale. These factors persuaded Theodore Herzl, one of the founding fathers of Zionism, that the Jews must leave Europe and establish their own state. It happens with this moment. Do you know how influential this moment is in France? See, we don't really think much about it unless you're living in France, but it was only in 2021 that French President Macron opened up a Dreyfus museum. A Dreyfus museum in 2021. They're still talking about Captain Alfred Dreyfus and the president of France is there. And you know what was still going on? There was still issues of politics in 2021 when it came to opening up a museum related to Captain Alfred Dreyfus. Political tension. Think about that. So it just goes to show, you know, this isn't just some history lesson. This continues on. It's a part of the French culture in some way, this Dreyfus affair, and it will change the way Theodore Herzl thinks. He uh, Theodore Herzl wrote this in a book that we'll highlight later. It's a book he wrote called Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State. He says, if France, a bastion of emancipation, progress, and universal socialism, can get caught up in the maelstrom of anti-Semitism and let the Parisian crowd chant, kill the Jews, where can they be safe once again, if not in their own country. Assimilation, remember this was the king of assimilation just a few moments ago. Assimilation does not solve the problem because the Gentile world will not allow it as the Dreyfus Affair has so clearly demonstrated. That's what Theodore Herzl wrote. Now I want you to see something. This book, Der Judenstaat, was published in February of 1896. Their Judenstadt argued it was it was a very important pan, It's not a big book at all. It's more like a pamphlet. Their Judenstadt argued that Jewish people must leave Europe for Palestine, their historic homeland. Only through a Jewish state could could, uh, could they avoid anti-Semitism. And what's fascinating is that this book begins to get disseminated around Europe. And I want to introduce. I'll read another one here. It says this. Therefore, he writes, I believe. This is actually the ending of Der Judenstaat, his book. He says, therefore, I believe that a wondrous generation of Jews will spring into existence. The Maccabeans will rise again, he writes. Let me repeat once more my opening words. The Jews who wish for a state will have it. We shall live at last as free men on our own soil and die peacefully in our homes. The world will be freed by our liberty, enriched by our wealth, magnified by our greatness. And whatever we attempt there to accomplish for our own welfare will react powerfully and beneficially for the good of humanity. You know what's fascinating is I think about these words that were written in 1896. And here we are in 2023. And we're using uh technology that a lot of it was developed in Israel, and this is the vision that Theodore Herzl had when he wrote this in 1896. Think about all the medications and healthcare products <laughs> and technology and, and ideas and uh, uh, all of the PhDs and all of the Nobel Peace Prize winners, all of those you know, uh, influential components of Israel. Israel is a place that is called the startup nation. So much is coming from Israel and here in 1896, And and what is it doing coming from Israel? It's benefiting the whole world. And here in 1896, this is exactly the vision Theodor Herzl had, that whatever we attempt there to accomplish for our own welfare, for us, will react powerfully and beneficially for the good of of humanity, of everybody. Now, what's funny is his pamphlet, Der Judenstadt, the Jewish state begins to get sent around. This is one of my favorite characters, everybody, in the history of Israel's rebirth. His name's William Heckler. Look at that beard. You thought, you thought that uh, that Theodore Herzl's beard was good. Look at that beard right there. It's a great beard. William Heckler was an Anglican priest, a chaplain at the British Embassy in Vienna. He loved the Jewish people, and he was a scholar of biblical prophecy. He believed a homeland for the Jewish people should be established in Palestine. And he wrote this, actually. Listen to this. I hope you resonate with this, because I do. This is why I love William Heckler. The duty of every Christian is to love the Jews, for they are still beloved for their father's sakes, adding, blessed shall that nation be which loves the Jews. For God promised to Abraham and his children, I will bless them that bless thee. Think about, I mean, I connect with William Heckler. Um, and so here he is, and William Heckler gets uh, a, a copy of Theodor Herzl's book, Der Judenstadt, and reads right through it and says, I've got to meet this guy. I've got to meet um, Theodor Herzl. So the chaplain at the British Embassy in Vienna, Reverend William Heckler, announced himself at the home of the author of Der Judenstadt the- uh, Theodor Herzl, on, on March 10, 1896. So Heckler just walks right up to Theodore Herzl's home and Herzl describes him in his diary. And I love this. Listen, Herzl described the figure he then encountered as a likable, sensitive man with the long gray beard of a prophet who explained to him that he considered his work, the Der Judenstaat, that book, the Jewish state, to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And offered to open the door for him to the German royal family. Hey, listen, this is God at work here. I really believe this. Because remember, let's rewind what we learned about Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl grew up to a very, right next door to a very influential synagogue in Budapest, Hungary, and was not a religious man at all. Very secular minded, if you will. And all of a sudden comes along this man with a fantastic beard. He looks like a prophet who reads his work, knocks on his door one day and reminds Theodore Herzl of something, which I just love. He says, Theodore, I know what you're trying to do. And I want to remind you what you're doing is not just political by wanting to help reestablish a Jewish state. It's biblical. It's biblical. Think about it. A Christian who loves the Lord, who studied God's word, loved God's prophetic word, is knocking on Theodore Herzl's door and he's saying to him, This mission you're on is so important and it's biblical. And I'm going to show you how important it is because I'm going to connect you, Theodore Herzl, with the right people. And so he says, I'm going to connect you because of the connections that he had. Um, growing up and the connections that he had as the chaplain of of the uh, of uh, the, of England in Vienna, um, at the embassy in Vienna, he's going to connect people to the right place. Uh, connect Theodore Herzl to the right people. So look what happens. Heckler arranged an extended audience with Frederick I, the Grand Duke of Baden, in on April 1896. The Grand Duke was the uncle of the German Emperor, the Kaiser Wilhelm II. And through the efforts of Heckler and the Grand Duke, Herzl would publicly meet with Wilhelm II in 1898, and we'll talk about that more in a little bit. And the meeting significantly advanced Herzl's uh, and Zionism's legitimacy in Jewish, in the Jewish and world opinion. Heckler, a, a, a man who loved the Lord, who loved the scriptures, knocks on the door one day and actually becomes incredibly cl- close friends with Theodore Herzl. The I didn't put this in the in the in the notes, but Theodore Herzl said he's a little cuckoo. you know <laughs> I love that. He's a little out there. He's got ideas I don't agree with, but I think he's incredibly important to this mission and he's reminding me that it's not just a political mission. God put William Heckler there to remind them it's a biblical mission. And you know what? He's a Christian. I just love that. I always resonate with my uh, with uh, William Heckler. What happens is this. Things begin moving. And instead of just sitting around, now Theodore Herzl is going to begin organizing people that have the same call he does. There were a lot of Jewish people at that time that wanted to see a homeland reestablished for the Jewish people. And so they're going to begin to make movements by organizing and creating structures to help establish a Jewish state. And this actually will happen in 1897 it will begin on the with the first Zionist Congress. There were Jewish people there. There were Christians there. Men like William Heckler were invited to be delegates of the first Zionist Congress. It happened in Basel, Switzerland on August 29th. Through the thirty first, eighteen ninety seven, there were two hundred and eight delegates, twenty six press correspondents. It was chaired by Theodore Herzl himself. Uh, the, uh, the The result of the of the meeting was uh, that uh, the Congress, the First Zionist Congress, established what was called the Basel Program. I'll I'll show you that in a moment. It adopted. Think about this. That day, they adopted Hatikva as its anthem do you know what hatikva is hatikva is israel's national anthem today so if you ever watch the olympics or you watch uh, some something to do with sports or maybe something going on in israel and you hear their national anthem that was actually already the anthem the, that uh, that the first zionist congress chose for their uh, organization for their for their gatherings and so Israel would just adopt what the first Zionist Congress had already done. The international press covered the conference, which created conversations globally about Zionism. You know, the average person at this time is not thinking at all, the average person, is not thinking at all about Jewish people returning to the Ottoman Empire, Okay, why would a European Jew want to go to to the continent of Asia? Why would they want to go to the Ottoman Empire? They're not even thinking about it that much. But see, now all of a sudden the press gets involved and begin to write articles. And it just begins a little bit and it will grow over time. And I'll show you what I mean by that. Let me move on. The Basel program. This is a great picture. You'll see Theodore Herzl in the middle. There are other amazing Jewish men here who were very influential in the founding of uh, the Zionist um, uh, Congress, the first Zionist Congress, and whose names are remembered in Israeli history. And so it becomes really, really important. And it's this program uh, called the Basel program and what's awesome is that they they actually come up with four points so they came up with uh, an agenda and a mission that will drive them forward and so the first one is the promotion of the settlement of the jewish agriculturalists the artisans and the tradesmen that are already in palestine that were already in uh, the ottoman empire and developing the lands there are already jewish people returning to the ancient to 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 uh Palestine, as, the, as it was called at that time during the Ottoman Empire, they were already build, building farms. They were buying land. Uh, men like Rothschild were buying up land for the Jewish people as they were redeveloping it and getting rid of all the malaria. So the Basel program first establishes the promotion of these settlements that they had. The next is the federation of all Jews in local or general groups according to the laws of their various countries. So to begin to make groups in various countries that would all connect to this zionist congress that becomes important as well the strengthening of the jewish feeling and consciousness to connect people not only to the fact that we're not just exiled we shouldn't think separately we shouldn't assimilate we should be together we should be one and we should be thinking together for the benefit of what's going to happen if when we return to the land and finally the preparatory steps for the attainment of those governmental grants which are necessary to the achievement of the Zionist purpose. So this is what they came up with. This was their vision, um, which becomes important. And at the end of it all, Theodor Herzl writes this in 1897. He writes, at Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this out loud today, I would be greeted with universal laughter. In five years, perhaps, certainly in 50 years, everyone will perceive it. Now, I want you to think about this, because honestly, this guy, I- I'm not saying he's a biblical prophet at all, but you know, if you're going to buy a lottery ticket, you should have hung out with Theodor Herzl, okay? because he was spot on. Not only when he writes, does he say, we want to be a people that benefits all of humanity, which Israel is today, but he's even saying this in 1897, that in 50 years, there will be a Jewish state. And what's fascinating is that if you count ahead 50 years... You get to the year 1947, and in 1947, the United Nations granted the Jewish people the right to return to their ancient homeland. I I, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he chose that number. But in 1947, UN 181 was signed. And the nations agreed that the Jewish people, it's called the partition plan, the Jewish people have a right to establish their own state in their own land in in, in, in uh, what was then the British mandate. That was 50 years later. In five years, they'll laugh at me. But certainly in 50 years, everyone will perceive it, he said. Now, I want to fast forward here because Herzl meets with some interesting people. In 1896, we already talked about the fact that he met with Frederick I, the Grand Duke of Baden, to present the idea of a Jewish homeland. And actually, Baden knew William Heckler, and they talked about the Bible, and they talked about prophecies, and this, that, and the other, and Baden was totally on board. So Baden, take, or I'm sorry, Frederick I takes this up to his uncle, or to his, uh, I'm sorry, his uh, nephew, Kaiser Wilhelm II. And so that will make its way up he's going to talk to him. In between there in 1896 actually there was an attempt to meet um the Ottoman I mean the uh, the uh, Ottoman Sultan uh Abdul Hamid II uh to present his solution I love this for a Jewish state within the Ottoman Empire. And so look what it says this is so fascinating to me. So Theodor Herzl's going to meet with the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Remember Israel is was at that time in the Ottoman Empire. So he's gonna go there and he actually didn't get the attention of the Ottoman Sultan. He wasn't able to meet with the Ottoman Sultan, but he met, he met with his, uh, his Grand Vizier who was a very powerful individual as well. And he says this, I'd like for the Jews that if you could give us the opportunity to take land in the Ottoman Empire, the Jews would pay the Turkish foreign debt. We'll pay off the debt. We will pay toward Turkish foreign debt and help Turkey regain its financial footing in return for Palestine as a Jewish homeland. See, this is amazing, and I want you to keep this in mind. Look what Theodore Herzl is doing. He's not saying, we're just gonna run into is- to, to, to the Ottoman Empire and take our land back. No, he's trying to actually offer solutions on ways to create a Jewish state in a very political, diplomatic way. Hey, look, if you let Jews create a state, Jewish people create a state, In your empire, in the area of Palestine, if you let us do that, we will pay off some of the debt that you have, we'll help establish you and ground you financially as an empire, and we will help you, we'll work together if you do this. Um, Nothing came from that meeting. But fast forward two years, all this is happening very quickly. Kaiser Wilhelm, the, the emperor of the German empire, goes to the Ottoman empire to meet with the sultan, and to go to the Holy Land. And actually, Herzl's going to meet with him three times there. First, he meets with him on October 15th in 1898 in Istanbul, uh, when he goes to meet, when the Kaiser goes to meet with the sultan. He'll meet uh, the, the Kaiser again in, in Palestine in, in a place called Mikva Israel in 1898 on October 29th. That was actually Herzl's first time in Uh, in Israel. He had never been there before. That was his first time when he went to go meet with the Kaiser. And finally, in November 2nd, he meets with him. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that meeting in a moment. It's a very important one. And in 1901, again, Herzl meets with the Sultan, a different Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, who turned down Herzl's offer to consolidate Ottoman debt in exchange for a charter allowing the Zionists to access Palestine. So again, they're trying to work to build relationships, to establish relationships, not just take land. They wanted to work with the nations. They wanted the nation's approval. That's very important. Look at this, When, when, when Kaiser Wilhelm was gonna go to the Sultan in Istanbul, something interesting happens. Look at this. They're in Istanbul, Turkey. And during the Istanbul audience, the Kaiser asked Herzl what he wished for him to ask of the Sultan, the the Emperor of Germany at this time was actually very somewhat interested. I don't. I shouldn't say very. He was somewhat interested in what Herzl was presenting, um, and so he was interested enough to talk to the Sultan about it. And so he meets with uh, Herzl here. In 1898, it says his first meeting that Herzl had with the Kaiser was in Istanbul on October 15th. And on that day, he says to Herzl, tell me in a word what I am to ask the sultan. To which Herzl replied, a chartered company under German protection, which means this is the way we want to work it. It'll be a chartered company under the German protection that will allow us to set up a Jewish state in the Ottoman Empire. And the Kaiser brought the subject up twice with the sultan, and the sultan refused, even in return for the Jews, assuming the sizable Turkish foreign debt as Zionism was highly unpopular amongst the local population in Palestine. Go figure. Okay? And so it gets shut down. But I want you to look at that picture right there, everybody. You see that picture on the screen? A picture is worth a thousand words. The picture actually didn't even look like this this is uh this is a this is a 125 year old photoshop it really is if you look down close you almost look it almost looks like Theodore Herzl's hovering on the air do you notice that if you can look really close at him his feet look like they're above the ground well that's because they really wanted to get a photograph this is the kaiser the emperor of Germ- Germany meeting with Theodor Herzl in, in in Palestine at that time. But the problem was, is that the, the photographer couldn't get, it would all happened so fast, they were too far apart. And so the picture, they couldn't get them both together. And so the photo- photographer said, just stand there, Theodore, and I will take a picture of you and I'll Photoshop you in. And that's what we'll send to the newspapers. And so they Photoshopped them in. Do you see them, his feet hovering above the ground there? This picture though this picture is what made Theodor Herzl famous. This picture, think about it. You have a Jew, a Jewish person in the in the in their ancient Jewish homeland talking to the emperor of Germany, which controlled a lot of Europe at that time, and they're there talking about Zionist desires to return Jewish people to their homeland. And now all of a sudden, the papers around the world are lighting up. And this is the picture. Who is the man standing before Kaiser, the emperor? It's Theodor Herzl. He, in this picture, becomes the representative of the Jewish people in a return to their ancient homeland. This is the picture. Most people don't realize, and he's Photoshopped in. That's the best part about it. He's hovering above the ground practically. Herzl had a second formal public audience with the emperor at the uh, at the latter's tent camp on the street of the prophets in Jerusalem on November 2nd in 1898. And at the public presentation outside of mikvah in Jerusalem, uh, Herzl learned this is important what happens, even though it kind of looks like they're having a great conversation and things are going the way that they wanted it to go. Look what it says here. <laughs> Excuse me. Herzl learned that Kaiser's request to the sultan had not been successful. And the Kaiser no longer had any interest in Herzl or any interest in Zionism. Although Kaiser Wilhelm had backed away uh, from supporting Herzl's project, several press publications posited the meeting as a monumentous and successful moment as some political legitimacy had been lent to Herzl and Zionism, even though the whole thing went sour for Theodor Herzl on his first Visit to the Holy Land, even though it all went sour. This guy, the the Kaiser, the Emperor, is supposed to go. It was a great meeting. I think we're really going to make some headway here. He goes, you know what? He didn't say yes, and I'm done with you. I don't have time for this anymore. It actually ended very sourly for for Herzl. But this picture became the talk of the town, and it made Theodore Herzl famous. I love that. Actually. That place right here, if you see where they're standing, is here in Israel, it's called Mikveh Israel. This is the statue that was built in honor of that moment. And I want you to hear the Daily Mail in 1898 actually wrote about that picture. And this is what it said in 1898 on November 18th, as this picture was going around the world. Listen to what it says. One of the most important results, if not the most important, of the Kaiser's visit to Palestine is the immense impetus it had given to Zionism. This is being written in the newspapers. The movement for the return of the Jews to Palestine. The gain to this cause is the greater since it is immediate. But perhaps more important is still the wide political influence which this imperial action is like to have. Look at, listen to what it says. It's so backwards. What actually happened, there's Theodore Herzl. He's actually been Photoshopped in and the Kaiser, the emperor goes, no thanks. I'm out of here, okay? Then the newspapers print it and they go, hey, look at what's going on here. The Kaiser has got his back. Look at the imperial action is likely to happen. It has not been generally reported that when the Kaiser visited Constantinople, Dr. Herzl, the head of the Zionist movement, was there. Again, when the Kaiser entered Jerusalem, he found Dr. Herzl there. There's Dr. Herzl going everywhere the Kaiser is going. These were no mere coincidences, but the visible signs of accomplished facts. Oh, my goodness. This is a complete different report than what actually happened. I love this. Um, I love this. uh, 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 um, uh structure here. I love this sculpture. I'm sorry, not structure, but sculpture, because when you're looking at it from this angle, it just looks like Theodor Herzl is talking with the emperor. But then when you look at it from a different angle, notice the emperor is split in half. And there's a reason for that. And, and this is actually the, the one of the very first farms in Israel. It's called Mikva, that was, that was run by Jewish people. It's called Mikva Israel. It's still there. And if you notice, the reason that the the sculptor split it in half, split the Kaiser in half, was not because he was mad at him, but because Theodore Herzl knew, I cannot bring the Jewish people back to the land unless I get through Kaiser. I have to move through Kaiser for this to happen. I have to move through the Emperor. The Emperor is a key person. And think about it. Even the, Theodore Herzl would be wrong. God would do something actually momentous it would even though the emperor would say no it's that picture the picture sold it zionism was on the rise the jewish people were moving and they had the sultan's ear they had the, the the um the emperor of germany's ear and so the jewish people must be making some serious serious headway remember this is before the days of twitter when somebody could go nope that's not what happened at that point, if you're the emperor, you're going, well, it's out there. I'm not, I can't change everything. So this is important, an important moment in in um in Israel's uh history. I want to show you really quick some pictures of um how influential Theodore Herzl is in Israel's history. I, I can't stress it, I mean, honestly, I can't stress it enough. This man is. Beyond the George Washington, you know, uh, George Washington was around for the founding of of, uh, America. Um, He is even more than that because he never really had a chance to taste what uh, would become the fruits of his labor. But I want you to notice this picture here. This is the day David Ben-Gurion read the Declaration of Independence and who is hanging up above the provisional government of the Jewish state. Look at that Big giant picture of Theodore Herzl and David Ben Gurion, who's standing there reading the Declaration of Independence, will actually mention Herzl's name in the Independence, uh, de- the Declaration of Independence. That's nineteen May fourteenth, nineteen forty-eight. The monumentous moment. There he is hanging up. Look at this. This is Israel's Knesset plenum. It's pretty hopping today. Lots of disagreements going on in Israel's government. This is where the prime minister sits and all the people who do uh, uh, who, who represent the Israeli people. But do you see that far left-hand side, that little black square over there? I'm going to zoom in on it for you. Do you see who that is? Oh, that's Theodore Herzl. Look what he's doing. He's staring at the government. And he's saying, don't you forget me. Don't forget what I've done. He helped establish the Jewish state. So much so, there he is, staring at the prime minister when he speaks, staring at the speaker, staring at the uh, at all of the politicians, reminding them who it was that created, helped establish this Jewish state. Uh, look, at, there's a town in Israel. Just a little north of Tel Aviv, do you see what it's called there? It's called Herzliya. You can travel through Herzliya when you come to Israel with us. We'll drive up Route 20 as we go from Tel Aviv to Caesarea Maritime. And you know what town we'll pass right past? We'll go right past Herzliya, a town, an entire town named after Theodore Herzl. Oh, look at this! We're not done yet. Tel Aviv has an ode to Theodore Herzl. Theodor Herzl wrote a book called The Old New Land. In German, it's the Alt-Newland. Okay, you know what Tel Aviv, that they, when they translated uh, Alt-Newland into uh, into Hebrew, do you know what it came out as? Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is a two Hebrew words. a Tel or is something old, and Aviv is something uh, new, a spring, like the spring season. Tel is something old, it has old items in it. It's a mountain full of ancient artifacts. It's old, 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 old. And then Aviv is a is spring, like what we're experiencing right now spring, something new. So when they named the city of Tel Aviv, Tel Aviv, it was an ode to Theodore Herzl and the old Tel New Aviv land. Isn't that interesting? A little uh, uh, ode, a little tip of the hat to Theodore Herzl in Tel Aviv. Look at all this. Every single town in Israel, look at this. I try to take as many pictures as I possibly can for you. Every single town has a Herzl Street. There's a Herzl Street in Tel Aviv, a Herzl Street in Rehovot, a Herzl Street in Haifa, a Herzl Street in Jerusalem, a Herzl Street here, a Herzl Street there. I could have filled three pages with Herzl Street. I I didn't want to waste too much time on it, but I wanted you to see his name is everywhere. Herzl plays a major role in Israel's reestablishment. This is the top of Mount Herzl, just over here. If you're, if you can see my finger pointing over this direction on the uh, on the mountain, um, to your right is uh, what you might know as Yad Vashem, which is Israel's Holocaust uh, Memorial and Museum. And right next to Israel's Holocaust Museum and Memorial is Mount Herzl, which is basically the Arlington National Cemetery of Israel. It's where all of Israel's presidents and prime ministers are buried. It's where those who have lost their lives in service to their country, to the state of Israel, are buried. Uh, you can see some grave sites up there. They're all, they're scattered throughout the top of the mountain on Mount Herzl. Herzl died on July third, nineteen o four. He was very, very, very young. Uh, he was diagnosed with a heart issue earlier in the year, and he died of. Uh, uh, basically uh, a hardening of the arteries. And and a day before his death, he was actually with, I love this, everybody. Do you know who he was with the day before he died? He was with Heckler, my hero, Heckler, the believer, the follower of Christ. And he said the day before his death, he told the Reverend William Heckler, greet Palestine for me. I gave my heart's blood for my people. So he dies in 1904, years, decades before Israel would even become a nation again. He stipulated in his will that he wanted a poor, a low-class funeral without speeches. He didn't want any flowers. He wanted to be buried in a vault beside his father and to lie there till the Jewish people shall take my remains to Israel. He was like a Joseph in the book of of Genesis. Even though Joseph was buried in Egypt, he wanted to be buried in the promised land. So first he was buried in the Viennese uh, Viennese, uh, cemetery in the district of Dobling, and his remains were brought to Israel in 1949 and buried on top of Mount Herzl in Jerusalem, which was named after him. The coffin was draped in a blue and white uh, pall decorated with the Star of David, circumscribing the Lion of Judah and the seven gold stars, recalling Herzl's original purpose for the flag of the Jewish state. This is his tomb now on top of Mount Herzl in Israel. I hope that you see the influence that Theodore, if you have any questions too, please write them in the chat box. We have a few moments about Theodore Herzl's life. I'd like to uh, see if you have any questions. Um, But Theodore Herzl played a very, important role in the redevelopment of the State of Israel there wouldn't be a 75th anniversary if I really believe God had not called Theodore Herzl to to the task um and I love the way it all worked out it didn't all work out the plan it, you know it wasn't the way I'm sure Theodore Herzl thought it would plan work out the way he thought it would with all of these geniuses that were helping the cause I mean we, we're talking about some serious brain power, at the first Zionist Congress, and yet things didn't really go the way they thought it would. But then at the same time, God in his in His ways would use the foolishness of the world in order to accomplish his task. One little photo that was Photoshopped, who thought they were Photoshopping back then, would become such an influential photo that would redefine the way that the world thought about the Jewish people returning to their homeland. It's amazing that Theodore Herzl saw the Jewish people And their plight in Europe, almost prophesying in some way of the coming of the Holocaust that would happen just a few decades later, after his death, he saw this coming. This was the reason he wanted to reestablish a Jewish state. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.